I know many of you this week have felt like I have. You felt weak. You felt like everything else was stronger than you. And then to begin to sing the truth that He is stronger, it moves it from just mere words on a page to reality. He is stronger than our trials. He is stronger than we are, and I praise Him for it. So, we're going to see His strength. We're going to see His love. We're going to learn more about Him and His greatness as we look at the Bible together. So, I invite you to turn to Acts 8. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one at a row near you. So, just uh, kind of look around and poke a neighbor on the shoulder. Not too hard. Um, but uh, just let them know that uh, you would need a Bible. And uh, we would love for you to take that and to... Uh, look at God's Word with us together. We are in Acts chapter 8. We are plugging through the book of Acts. We just try to take books of the Bible and preach through it as much as we can. And we find ourselves in Acts 8 after uh, last week, finishing up 6 and 7. And so what I want to do is I want to read um, verses... Um, I'm going to actually start at the end of chapter 7. I want to read um, verse 56 of chapter 7 all the way through 8. Eight. Okay, so chapter 7, verse 56. This is, we're just finishing a man named Stephen who had preached a message to a group of people that didn't want to hear it, bottom line. And they were so bothered by his message that this is the result. Verse 56. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, that is the crowd who was listening, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped up their ears and rushed together at Him because they thought His words were blasphemous. Basically, they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, that He had come. And so by Him speaking so affectionately and highly of Jesus, it was like He was a blasphemer. So they plugged their ears and they rushed at Him in verse 58. Then they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Powerful words. Oh, that he would give us grace to speak those kind of words to our enemies. And when he had said this, Stephen died. He fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul... He was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But now, in verse 4, those who were scattered, they went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ, that is Jesus. In verse 6, and the crowds went with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Because unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in the city. Let's pray. Father, that's what I ask for. That's what we ask for today. That there would be much joy in our hearts. That there would be much joy in this city because Jesus has changed lives. Lord, we pray that there would be much joy among the peoples all over the world that have never heard of Jesus Christ because Jesus' message has been brought to them by loving individuals and that because they are finally hearing the Gospel, they are changed and much joy would be brought. Lord, we plead for much joy to come. 
But Lord, we feel like that there's so many obstacles to that joy. There's trial, there's pain, there's difficulty, there's those against us, there's us and all of our crazy desires. And we come all in here feeling burdened and anxious and worried and sometimes oppressed. And, and then the, the call is for joy. It just feels almost impossible. And yet, Lord, what I pray for in this moment is that You truly would meet us in power. You would fill us up with Your Holy Spirit. You would help us to see that You are at work even through the difficulties and the trial and that Your goal is to grow us as individuals, but more importantly, to grow us as a church. You will grow us. That is Your promise. You're faithful to do that. And that will be through joys and pains. And so help us to delight in the fact that You are with us and never leaving us and growing us into the greatest joy possible. And so, Lord, now I pray, make it land on us. I can't do it, but You and Your Holy Spirit can. So do it now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, my, uh, I'm coaching my boys in basketball. That says more about their desperation in needing of a coach than it does about my mad skills because um, my skills aren't mad. So I have two boys, um, three boys actually, but my two oldest um, are playing basketball. They're on a team. I'm coaching them. And we won our first two games. Yep, uh-huh, won them. And then we lost our next two games. <laughs> so now we're at 500. And, you know, the glory days was when we were, you know, 2-0. and And then all of a sudden we began to lose and then we lost again. And you can just see it on the kid's face. The trajectory is a downward one. So we show up for this game. Here's to kind of just let you taste what they're feeling. Show up to this game and this kid who we played last week, he's like, Hey, you remember me? We beat you last week. I was like, really? Are you going to do that? How immature. You know, act older than a sixth grader. You know, so, but I didn't do that. Um, I just let him go. And, but these kids, they're just feeling beaten down. But this past week, we sat down and before we always do practice, we always take about five minutes to just talk about how Jesus matters in basketball. And so we have three things. How do you give glory to God? You play hard, you don't give up, you work as a team. And so one thing that Jesus does is that He never gave up on us. He never gave up. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what I'm able to say is that even through the trial, Jesus didn't give up. He kept going. And so we've got to work hard. He's going to give us strength. We've got to work as a team. And we've got to use this as a means towards growth. And I began to see these kids like, okay, first of all, they're fifth and sixth graders, so they don't pay much attention. So, you know, they're all, their eyes are all over the place and I'm pouring out my heart kind of like you know happens in here no just kidding and I'm, uh, I'm pouring out my heart and these guys are focused and they finally they finally seem to get it let's go play ball so we go out and play ball and I tell you God met us on Monday in a really neat way. They worked their rear ends off. Now, I worked them hard. We were sweating pretty hard and they were having trouble breathing. But we worked and worked and it began to click for them. Some of the things that led to the loss, some of the ways that they needed to grow, and it began to help them understand that losses are not meant to be focused on for defeat, but they're actually used and designed for growth to make us better. And we all know that's hard in life, isn't it? It's hard to look at the pain square in the eye and to actually begin to believe that that has any redemptive, good, possible outcome at all. Because the pain's too acute, it's too difficult. But what we begin to see in the book of Acts here, we begin to look at how through some of the most horrific circumstances in the early church led to some of the greatest growth of the church. The main idea today is that God grows His people through joys and through pains. That's what He does. God is in the business of growing His people. And He grows His people through joy and through pain. And so what we want to look at now is in verses 1 to 3, we want to look at how He actually grew the church through pain. Then we'll begin to see how He grew the church through joy. Then we'll begin to see how He grows us as a community. And then we'll begin to see after that just how faithful our God is. He loves and is committed to growing His people. So let's look at verses 1 to 3. Growth through pain. 
If you've understood what was read, Stephen had just preached his heart out about what he believed to be true. It was so true that he was willing to give his life for it. And the religious leaders of that day, including one who was named Saul, who they threw the garments at his feet, they were just enraged that they would speak of this Jesus with such affection as if He were God and that He was the coming Messiah. He now has come. and that Because there's a sense of, okay, I just killed Him. You know, the one I'm longing to come, the Messiah, I just killed. And so there's this, no, it's not happening. And they killed Stephen. And then you look at chapter 8, verse 1, and it says, And Saul approved of his execution. Just how blind sin can be. And honestly, how blind sometimes religion can be. Suicide bombers, people getting in planes, all under the guise of religion. What we pray for is that God would come in and open eyes to see. Because there are so many people, even in our Christian churches, that are shackled by religion. Do for God that He might then do for you. Rather than He has done everything for you, cannot add to His work, and therefore He will come, forgive, change, equip, and be in you that then you might, by His power, do for Him acts of love. The world flips it upside down. And it is killing our world. But here you have Saul. Saul approved of the execution, just blinded. And what happened was there arose on that day a great persecution. First time that word is used in the book of Acts. Persecution, that is being hurt, um, ostracized, even threatened, killed, whatever, because of faith, because of your belief in something. The persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and then they were scattered. It was just like, boom, you run for your life, bottom line. And they ran to Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who stayed put in Jerusalem. Now it says in verse 2, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Can you imagine taking one that was one of the leaders? Stephen was one who was said to be in Acts chapter 6 full of a great reputation, full of wisdom. And he was even kind of one who was kind of leading this charge to help these widows who were in need. He was just a great guy and now he's dead. Somebody sitting right next to you, dead. And now you take him out and you bury him all because of his faith. It's going to leave a mark on you. There's going to be something that kind of sticks in the heart. What in the world? Is this really worth dying for? Is there really any good coming out of this? There's sorrow, there's sadness. And then there's Saul who now takes... This is almost a license. It's like, okay, if this is what they believe and this is what their leadership does, we've got to stop this now. And so he just starts ravaging. Ravaging. What a word. It's just like a like an animal after me. It's like just going hard after something. And just like he starts going out and getting these men and women and ripping them out of their homes and putting them in prison. And like any good story, Saul is being emphasized here. You never get the, the, the hero of the story kind of at their climax. You always kind of get the foreshadow. You always kind of get the, the beginning taste of like, why are they bringing this guy Saul in here? Well, he's kind of rotten. That's what you see when you look at Acts. But it's going to lead somewhere in Acts 9. But we're not there today. But Saul dragged them off and committed them to prison. And so it just looks bleak. It looks bleak. Your leaders... Leader and Stephen is dead. You've got many of your brothers and sisters now who are scattered. You had to bury your lead. It's just like, is this really worth... Is anything good going to come out of this? This is a crisis. It was in Jerusalem. The church was growing. And now, boom! Scatter oppression and pain. And this is when the lessons begin, friends. Can growth really happen when pain is involved? Can it really happen? Well, verse 4 helps us to see that it does happen. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. All of a sudden, the Word was preached, and what we begin to see is that the crowds paid attention, people were being healed, and all in verse 8 it says, There was much joy in the city. So, there was this sense like the punchline is growth can come through pain, but the question is the how, Right? And friends, I want to lay out before us today that 
We have examples of this all throughout our lives. And this has been a message throughout Acts over and over and over that pain is actually a tool in God's hand to grow His people. That pain can be used to make us more like Jesus. It's not throwaway. He's not absent. And you're like, okay, I've heard this. I get it. Some of you is brand new, but other of you it's just like, yeah, I get it. And I just want to say, no, you don't. No, you don't. I don't get it. You get it when you are in the middle of some of the hardest times of your life. You get it when pain is acute and you're ready to throw in the towel. You get it when all of a sudden there's so much tension in your home, you worry whether your marriage can last. You get it when there's been death, when disease has been forecast upon your life or upon your children. You begin to get it and you taste it and then you're terrified. You're terrified. Where's my faith? Where's my God? Where's the good in this? It's horrible. And here's the image that began to come to my mind. is like, you picture pain as a car, and every time you go through it, you really believe that Satan is behind the wheel. And you think that he's the one driving, and he's just jerking you around, just messing with your life, and he's the one that's in charge. He's the boss. That's how you feel. And then sometimes, if you've, kind of, if you've got some spiritual inclination, sometimes if you don't, you'll still put God behind the wheel, but you'll put Him behind the wheel with an angry face. That God is the one who's steering the pain, but He's steering it with anger. Oh, get with the program and He's just jerking you around and almost a sense of, ah, I know He's sovereign, but He's just doing this because, you know, and all of a sudden you have this scowl look when it comes to God. That is not our God. The image is that God is behind the wheel because honestly He's given an elbow to Satan. It's called the cross. He's defeated him. Satan has been pushed away. God is driving. I promise you this. When all pain is out there, all pain has the devil's designs in it. Okay? But let's just make sure that you know pain does not trump God's designs. God has purposes. He's behind the wheel. And He's behind the wheel with both tears and joy. Yes, He can have both emotions. And He has His arm around you while He's driving and He drives you to the hospital. Or He drives you to a field, a place of rest. He drives you to what you need. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's our God. That's our God in the midst of pain. And you get it. You get it. How many of you have ever been runners before? Okay? If you ever try to run like a 5K, or you have a goal out there, I want to run a half marathon, that does not happen by sitting on your couch eating bonbons. It happens because you get out and you run. And if you stop when it hurts, you will never run a half marathon. You have to push past the pain so that the miles increase. Some of you have had surgery. Extensive surgery. You've been laid up in the hospital. Okay? So you're laying in the hospital. Every fiber in your being says, I would rather just lay here because I'm hurting. And then that rude nurse, just kidding nurses, you're not rude, you're doing your job. They come in, physical therapists come in, and they say, get up. And you're like, uh-uh, this ain't happening. My body's screaming in revolt. And so, no, you're going to get up and you're going to walk the lap around the... And it's like every step is pain and labor and difficulty. But nobody in here would say that was cruel. The surgery was good because it gets rid of the cancer or it fixes the problem. And the nurse is kind because they are pushing you not to have atrophy of the body. And God and His kindness is pushing us not to have atrophy of the soul. Pain serves as a physical therapist. In the hands of our great God, it forces us to get up and to grow in ways that we never would have chosen on our own. Many times pain pushes you to deal with what you never thought you could deal with. 
so that through God's comfort and power you might be used in ways you never thought possible. I'll say it again. Many times pain pushes us to deal with what we never thought we could deal with. So that through God's comfort and power we might be used in ways we never thought possible. God is kind. God is kind. And He's always with us. And He's never against us. That's how I find rest in pain. Is to know that as I sit there in that difficulty, I rehearse the truths about my God. He is for me. He is not driving in anger. He is a good shepherd. And He is using, designing, orchestrating my life, even this pain, to shape me and to sharpen me, to grow me in ways I never would have done without it. But I promise you, especially those of you in pain right now, He is growing you right now and He's growing you to use you. To use you. I cannot tell you some of the major trials in my life how God has taken those and has used those significantly in the lives of others. To be able to identify and to be able to come alongside and to be able to empathize and to grow me in compassion and care. Friends, your pain is not throwaway. It's not trash. It's there from a great and glorious God who hates sin, but who is for you and is growing you to be more like Him. And so what do you do? When you're in the pain, you rest that God is for you. You rest that God is good. You rest that He is working to conform you to His image. You rest that He is always, 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 always for you. God grows us through pain. And friends, He also grows us with joy. It's not just a sour story. He grows us with joy. Look at it in verses 4 through 8. Actually, it'll be verses 4 through 17, but I want to hone in on verses 4 through 8. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Don't miss that. The very thing that got them in trouble The very thing that made them lose their house and lose their friends is the very first thing that Philip does with his life. Most people would call that stupidity. And here it's called faith. It's called sweet faith. It's a sense that the very thing that hurt his friends and even pushed him out of his own home is the very thing that he takes to this people. Why? Why? Verse 8 is so beautiful. There was much joy in the city. Much joy in the city. Philip, many of us would say, well, if that's what got me in trouble, believing in Jesus, I'm done with the Jesus deal. Okay? Done. I'm bitter at God. I'm over it. But Peter, but Philip is shown as an amazing example of faith that he believes that God is still good, that God is still working, that God is even shaping him through this circumstance so that he will continue to proclaim God because God has met him in such a way he's able to have joy in the midst of his pain and he wants that joy for somebody else. That's what makes us go. You want that joy for somebody else. You've tasted and seen that God is good and you don't want to keep it inside. And so what does he do? He believes this gospel. His life has been changed. And even though it didn't mean that he had no pain, God met him and comforted him and he was still empowered to speak. And he did it. And when he spoke of Jesus... They had listening ears and they were all of one accord. And then as regularly happens in the book of Acts, when the gospel goes into kind of uncharted territory, there's kind of an unprecedented sense of healing and the casting out of demons. And that's what we see here in verses 6 and 7. They were awed by the signs that He did. Um, For unclean spirits came out of those who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And as the gospel goes forth and as these effects of the gospel are seen... There's joy in the city. It's the first time in this book that the word joy appears. First time that it appears. And it's this word joy that I think needs to be really pushed in on because it's not only the content of joy, what joy is, but it's where the joy happened. And I'm going to start with the where first. 
The Word of God brings joy to the Samaritans. And that's what we begin to see in verses 4-8. through It's joy among the Samaritans. This matters. Because the Samaritans were a racially mixed group. Partly Jewish, partly Gentile. And they were despised by everybody. Jews and non-Jews alike. And historically we understand from uh, John 4 and also from just other history that Samaria was the most direct route to go from Judea to Galilee. To just shoot straight down through Samaria. But faithful Jews, they really believed they would be tainted going through such a nasty place. So they did an end around. They chose the long route. You really got to hate somebody to cause yourself more days of labor and more money and more... I mean, so instead of this, they do this. Potentially even doubling their time. All because of their hatred for the Samaritans. The Samaritans had their own version of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had their own version. They had their own temple. They even had their own rendering of Israel's history. And the Jews just hated it. You're just messing up everything that's good about us. And I don't like you. They didn't like the racial mixing. They didn't like anything. The Samaritans even had an expectation that a Messiah would come, but they called him Tacheb, which is this sense of this coming one in their understanding. So they were primed and ready for a message of the good news. But the people in Jerusalem were content to just kind of stay where they were. The church was growing in unprecedented numbers. There are over probably near 10,000 people right now in Jerusalem. But they did not want to go to this area of Samaria. I was reading this week with my kids. And we were reading about World War II for school. And as I was reading about World War II, of course, um, most people know what is most hated about World War II is Hitler and his... Um, regime and all of the aims that they had. And they basically, of course, as you know, held up the Aryan race as the race. And those who were blonde hair and blue eyes, which he was not, which is bizarre and shows the craziness of him, but that's a different story. And so, this is the race. This is the, the group that everybody is. And here's the language used. Everybody else is inferior. Inferior. Such that there were over 6 million Jews killed, but there were also Serbs and Poles killed. There was just massive slaughter of people on an unprecedented level. Genocide, genuinely genocide. Executing for race was happening all over that time. It was just sickening to read. And I have personally been to Poland. I've been to Auschwitz and seen the concentration camps. And it just... The horrors of evil and the pain that these people went through all because of the hatred of the human heart. It was atrocious. And one thing that must not ever characterize the church of God is a toleration of that kind of injustice. We've had that kind of injustice in our country. It's a history that needs to be hated and learned from and not repeated. The church of God must hate injustices that are exercised because of economic base or because of skin color. How dare we have the audacity to say people are inferior because of something, some of their skin tone or what they have. It's atrocious. We're made in the image of God. And the people of God must not stand for it. And friends, it goes even a step further. This is not, the people of God, it's not okay just to say we are welcoming of all people. We're welcoming them. That's a good step. But the problem here is that they weren't intentional. They weren't intentional. And God, through pain, thrust them out to be intentional. 
We must not just be a welcoming church. We must be an intentional church to say God is a God of all peoples. He delights when harmony happens between races and along economic bases and we come together. Diversity relates in harmony. God gets glory. That's what we aim for as a people. And so it wasn't only that the gospel would go forth to show that all people can be saved, but it's that Ephesians 2, that the gospel goes forth not only to save all people, but to bring people who normally would hate each other, bring them together in peace and harmony. That's when the gospel is shown off. And the beauty is, Philip goes, he speaks, and these Samaritans, they're saved. These racially mixed people that would normally be hated, they're saved. And God is beginning to do a work of saying, My heart is that every nation, tongue, and tribe together worship My name. That's His desire. And so joy comes... Joy comes as the Word of God goes into these uncharted territory. And then we've got to understand... That this joy here is what took him. The joy is what took uh, Philip to speak the good news in this area. And it was characteristic of the early church that they were aiming for joy when they went out. And this is because this was Jesus' message. Jesus' message in John 15.11, He said this, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So when Philip goes out and speaks the good news for the joy of a city, for the joy of a people, he's fulfilling what Jesus said would happen, is that I'm going to put my joy in you so that as you experience, your joy may be full and full to overflowing. This is what God's people do. They first of all believe they serve a joyous Savior who delights to be joy in His people. That we might overflow. That's why we go. Psalm 67 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Of course, it is not, Yay! I'm pain ridden. That's not it. It's not a sense of just glad heartedness over pain. It's a sense that I believe my God is good and that He is for me. And I believe. And I have confidence that He loves me. And therefore what happens is not a gladness over the circumstances, but a gladness that God is still at work. And so friends, this joy was their aim. This joy was His ambition. And as God grew the church, He grew them to want the joy of others. But we also see that in order for this joy to truly go, the Holy Spirit is required. So spiritual growth requires the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 14 uh, through 16. Here's what I want to do. Before we get there, we see now that there's more signs of this joy. Verses 9 through 13, it says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. This man is the power of God that is called great. So magicians were very common back then, doing all these kind of tricks for money. And it amazed the people so much that they would generally think they were divine in some way, shape, or form. And verse 11 says, And they all paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with magic. But, verse 12, When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, And the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed after being baptized. He even continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This is God growing His church and great joy coming to the church. And it is just beautiful. So Philip goes to the Samaritans and they come to faith. This magician now comes to faith and he's changed from these ways, at least it seems. And they're all baptized men and women, even Simon. And now look, it gets a little confusing. (laughs) At least it did for me. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that the Holy Spirit, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That's odd. Verse 16. 
For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then the apostles laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've not been in the church, you might think, okay, that's, okay, is this how it works? It's kind of, okay, whatever. And if you have been in the church, you think this is just flat out weird. Because if you've been in the church, you believe that when you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells you immediately. That's what He does. He rescues you right away and He fills you up with gifts and fruit that you might live for Him. But here, they're professing faith, they're baptized, and yet the Holy Spirit doesn't come on them. What in the world is going on? Well, in Acts 2, we've already been here earlier, Acts 2, 38-39, it says that here's the normal pattern. You repent, you believe, you're baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you receive the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. So the precedent is already set. You, you turn from your sin. You trust that Jesus is the only one that can change your life. That He is both Lord and Savior. Your sins are forgiven. You're washed clean and the Spirit of God comes inside of you. This is what happens. That's the norm. So why isn't that happening here? Is the question. If that's the norm, why isn't it happening here? Well... You might ask, well, is there something deficient somewhere? Maybe let's start with Philip. Maybe Philip preached a, a, a wrong message. But that's not what the text bears witness to say, right? It says that Philip proclaimed to them Christ. That's verse 5. And then verse 12. But they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. There was nothing wrong with what Philip did. He preached Jesus. That's not wrong. So what's going on here? Well, if it's not deficient that Philip preached a bad message, maybe Philip, maybe something wrong with Philip himself. Because in the past, the apostles, the twelve went out and spoke, and so Philip's not one of the twelve, so maybe that's the big deal. But that's not the deal either, because one chapter later, Ananias goes out, and he lays hands on Saul, and Saul gets converted, and the Holy Spirit comes in him. In a similar fashion, Paul, Saul, whatever you want to call him right now, turns to Jesus, waits a little bit, and then Ananias goes to him, lays hands, and the Holy Spirit comes. So it wasn't the apostle deal. So it wasn't a bad message. It wasn't that he wasn't an apostle. Well, what is it? Maybe it's something deficient with the Samaritans. You know, they were, they were viewed by the Jews as, as, as a people that were estranged. So maybe it was something wrong with them. But that doesn't seem to be the case either because all it says is they believed, they were in one accord, and they got baptized. Baptism was a sign that what they did was legit. And so it's like, okay, if they're going to baptize them and raise them from the dead, then it's not what the Samaritans aren't the problem. Then what in the world is the problem? Why didn't this happen according to the norm? And the reason I think we are tipped off that this also is not the norm is verse 16. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. As if the reader should be saying, why hasn't the Holy Spirit come yet? Well, it hasn't happened yet. This is an, an aberration. This is an, an exception to the norm. So, what's going on? Well, unique in history... As you read through the book of Acts, as the gospel goes into uncharted territory, literally to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, the Holy Spirit of God is withheld. And here He's withheld in order that Peter and John might come in order that the Samaritans might be seen to be fully incorporated into the people of God. You can imagine, if there was some hatred that they had towards the Samaritans, they, are, they would be really tempted, the Jerusalem church, to say, eh, that didn't really happen. But if Peter and John went there, and they laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came in them, and they saw great and amazing faith in those people, there would be no exceptions. There would be no way to cry foul. They would say, Yes, these people are genuinely a part of the people of God. And that's why you see this happen with Paul. 
That's why you see this happen in Acts 10 and 11 with the Gentiles. When the good news actually shifts from a, a Jewish or a Jewish part message to a totally Gentile message, and the Gentiles are folded in, the same thing happens. Happens again in Acts 19. But this is not the norm. The norm is Acts 2. You believe, you repent, the Spirit of God comes, and that's what's borne witness to in the rest of the New Testament. Here's a prime example. Ephesians 1, 13. In Him, that's in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. No gap. You believe, Holy Spirit comes. And He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, so that's what happens. That is the pattern. Now you might ask, especially if you're new to the church, you're like, good night, you're making a big deal about this, bro. What's going on? It matters. That very verse tells us it matters. The believer has confidence that their faith will last when the Holy Spirit has come inside of them. That's the confidence. He is the seal of saying, yes, What I have begun, I'm going to complete. I'm going to get you to the end, believer. Don't you worry. We're going to work at this together. I'm always for you. It matters for your confidence. It also matters because the Bible says when you don't know how to pray, it's the Spirit of God inside of you who prays for you. Even with words, because you don't even know what words to say. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches you. When you read the Bible and it seems like a foreign language and all of a sudden something clicks... It's like, I get that. That's the Spirit of God. When your heart is in pain and all of a sudden you receive comfort from a promise that God gives, that's the Spirit of God. And when Ryan shares his testimony to us and he shares that one of the main differences between pre-conversion Ryan and post-conversion Ryan is the fact that he all of a sudden feels guilt over his sin, some of you would just be like, that's what religion does. It just pins you in and makes you feel guilty. No! God is not honored by His people dwelling in guilt. But I tell you this, it's good news when you're told you're sick. It's good news. And the Spirit of God, He convicts and He says, you've got sin in the heart that is destroying your joy and it is killing you. Turn from it and run to Me. Don't dwell in guilt. That's not delightful to God because Jesus died for that. But guilt is a gift so that you don't run your life over a cliff. That's the Spirit of God who does that, who convicts and empowers. It's the Spirit of God who gives the fruit of joy and love. And my confidence, your confidence as a believer is because the Spirit of God comes and rests inside. That's why it matters. That's why we make a big deal. That's why the apostles had to come and lay hands. And why the Holy Spirit needed to come upon those people. They were almost like the, the Jews prior to Pentecost. They trusted in the risen Jesus, but the Spirit of God had not come yet and they were waiting. This is almost kind of like what it was like. But they need the Holy Spirit in order to experience full joy. That's the point. The joy of growth comes as the Holy Spirit is at work. Now, the story takes a crazy turn takes a crazy turn to where all of a sudden, you know, the beauty of the church is that you're growing together. You're growing together, but there's also people around you that aren't growing. And honestly, let's be honest now, before you start, yeah, they're not growing. You're not growing all the time either, at least, you know, to the degree that you're maybe satisfied with. Okay, so we've all got issues, right? Okay, but the good news is that God is growing us. But when people struggle to grow, it affects us, and that's what's happening here. So there's a pain that happens amidst growth. In the growth that's happening, when some grow and others don't grow, there's, there's, there's something going on. And this is what we see here in verse 9, 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was through the laying on of hands, remember Simon was a magician. He was really keen into making money off of all kinds of powers and whoops and whops and whatever. So here's what happens. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered him money. Hey, I want that. That looked pretty amazing. And so, can I buy that? Well, that was not a good thing to say. So, Peter, verse 20, he lays into him. 
And he basically starts out with a curse. You know, it really wasn't cushioned. It wasn't really, you know, I'm going to worry about your feelings. It was, you are sinning. And your sin is affecting everyone. Because, you know, Simon was a popular guy, right? He was one who was known. And so, Peter says, may your money perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That's the point. Gift of God is a gift from God. He gives at His measure and His timing. That's the beauty of Christianity. The beauty of Christianity is that you don't try to use words to get money or you don't try to pray for people to get power or you don't do healing to make a profit. You do it for love. And He didn't get that. It was for the money, for the power, for the prestige. And so, Peter goes on, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. The only way out is verse 22. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Because I see that in your heart there is a gall of bitterness and you are bound by iniquity. Those two last phrases, these actually Old Testament allusions. Deuteronomy 29 talks about the root of bitterness. All it is is when somebody follows after false gods and got others to do the same, they were said to be holding on to a root of bitterness. And when it says they were in the bond of captivity, it's Isaiah chapter 58 which says they were in the bond of unrighteousness. They were following this path of unrighteousness. So he's clearly acting as an unbeliever here. And the only way out is repentance. Now, make sure you step back and get the picture. A man professed faith in Jesus, and he was baptized. We baptize based upon what seems to be a credible profession of faith. That you say, I need Jesus, I need His death, and I need His resurrection. All of that happened in Simon's life. But there's clearly a passage from Jesus when He says there's multiple soils where some receive it with joy initially, but through the cares of the world and other things, the love of money, and etc., they run from Jesus. And this is what's happening here. This is not loss of salvation talk. That's not what's happening. It is repent. Repent. If you repent, you can be changed. But if you're not willing to run away from this stuff, it's not possible for you to be changed. So, it's not those of you in the room who are really fighting against your sin and really struggling and battling and yet you fall back and you move forward and you fall. That's not not who we're talking about. It's those who know they're doing wrong, who are approached about it and say, this is wrong, and you say, I don't care, I'm going to keep doing it. You should be warned right now. You should be warned. We don't get the end of the story for Simon's life. We're just given the warning. Repent of your sin. Do not hold on to that bitterness, that following after falsehood and leading others. Don't be bound. It's captivity to be bound by sin. Repent of it and run from it that your sins might be forgiven. That's the message today. It's a warning. To escape the judgment of God, you must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus alone. And so Simon says, well then pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. We honestly have no idea if he just didn't want the consequences or if he really loved Jesus. You don't get that there in that line. It's just pray for me. But this doesn't happen. So we have no idea his heart. But what we do know is that the apostles went back out in verse 25 and they evidenced that the Spirit of God was at work among this church and they took it back to Jerusalem to say, God is at work among the Samaritans. But with all that, we step back and we say, okay, God grows His people through joys and through pains. Then we have this warning of one who wasn't willing, who might not have been willing to turn. What's our hope here? Our hope is in the faithfulness of God. Listen to this and don't miss it. Our hope is in the faithfulness of God. When
When we talk about the book of Acts, we are tempted to think it's the Acts of the Apostles. It's all the things that God's people are doing. The act that Luke is most concerned about, who's the author of this book, is God Himself. Luke is most concerned that God is seen to be at work. You might not remember it, but Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, And you will be my witnesses. Words from Jesus' mouth. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. What's happening? The people of God didn't want to spread. They weren't going to really follow that. They were kind of content being in their own little bubble. And so persecution is brought that they might spread. This passage is God's faithfulness to care for His people and to accomplish what He said He's going to do. He promises that He is going to grow His church. He promises He's going to grow you. 2 Corinthians says that you are being changed. As you behold Jesus, you're being changed from one degree of glory to another. He's doing that work in you right now. And for some of you, He's doing it through pain. But He's doing it. And He's faithful. And He loves you. And He will not give up on you. What happens when men aren't faithful? They're not faithful because their desires change. Because they get weak. They kind of lose interest in what's going on. That's when you and I grow to not be faithful. It doesn't affect God. He doesn't get weak. He never loses interest in you. He's fully faithful. This is our God. He never changes. He never loses desire. He's not afraid. Those lead to our unfaithfulness, but He never does that. And so friends, I want you to know, today in your trial, God is faithful to grow you. And His love for you has been made so crystal clear when He killed His Son that you might be forgiven and have life. He loves you. And He wants you to have hope. And He did that by giving you the Holy Spirit that you might grow and grow and grow. Through joys, we give Him praise. And through pain, we lean into Him and we trust Him that He is using it to grow us and to use us in ways we never thought we could be used. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your kindness. I thank You for Your love. And I ask, O God, that You now shape us. I ask that You give us a hunger for You in ways that we never thought possible. We all in this room know what it's like to be distracted by our hungers of the heart. To be distracted by our craving for money or just people praising us or whatnot. But what I pray for right now is the joy of hungering for You. I pray that our hearts would see You as the actor in this story that's unfolding in the book of Acts. That You are the one that is working and using and growing us through pain. You are the one who is intentional and not just kind of letting things happen. And You've called us as a church to not just be welcoming, but to be intentional. You've also called us to be shaped through pain. And so God, I ask that we would not believe the lie that it's throwaway, but we would believe the lie that You are a good shepherd behind the wheel of our life and You are guiding us where we need to go. And so right now I pray that as we sing, that our hearts would begin to line up and that we would say, You are enough. Lord, right now move, I pray. Make Yourself known to each and every heart in this room. Speak to the needs that are present here. Comfort where comfort is needed. Convict where conviction is needed. It is You, the Holy Spirit, who reminds us we are not orphans, but children. We are children, accepted and loved. So right now, God, I pray, come alongside us. Draw us near to You and help us to take great hope that You are faithful to grow us 